Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. In this episode, I'm going to attempt to flesh out a topic that has been on my mind for 25 years. It, because I've been playing for 40 years, and the first 15 years it never occurred to me. And then when I got to thinking about it, it just kept coming up over and over and over in my mind. And l- let me try to explain this, this, um, this concept to you. And, and that is when you sing a bluegrass song, and the truth is it applies to almost every type of song, but we're bluegrassers, so I'm talking bluegrass here. When you sing a bluegrass song, in order for the content, the meaning of that song to be absorbed by the listener, you say the words, you sing them to a a melody and they travel through the air and they go in somebody's ears and are comprehended on the listening end. At least that's the idea. So you sing a line of a song and they get what, what you just said. And now they understand what you're singing about. That seems really basic. It's just like if I were to read you a story. I could read the story, you'd hear the words, and then you'd, in theory, understand the story. But here's where I begin to diverge from that very basic, simplistic approach. And that is, I feel like I've witnessed this a lot, and I've been guilty of it myself, of singing a song and going through the motions I'm singing all the words, I'm reciting them musically, but I'm not thinking about them at all. And I would like to make the case that if you can think about what you're actually singing about and try to imagine the things that you're singing about, then you will communicate those ideas better. It would be like if we had two people, one person let's say, um, was trapped in a coal mine. And after three harrowing days being trapped in a coal mine, he was dug out and he wrote down what happened, the story. Now, he gets up and reads the story to you. It's going to have a different impact on the listener than if he handed it to me and I read it. Because I wasn't buried in the coal mine. So there's no way that I can fully feel and express what he went through. So what I'm saying is this. And it's a theory. And you can, uh, you can uh, refute it if you like. But if my theory goes like this. If the better you can imagine what the words, the lyrics are about the more likely that that feeling will be communicated to the audience. And I I brought this up. I think I talked about it. It's getting, to be quite honest, it's getting hard to remember some of what I talked about. And if I repeat myself on the podcast, I apologize for that. 
but you know, it's getting up to, I don't know how many hours now of material here. So if I've said this before, maybe that just means it's important enough to say it again. I think I talked about an instance of our band playing old home place, very common song. We played old home place and it sounded pretty good. But when we finished, I, I, basically asked, has anybody ever actually read these lyrics? Have you thought about what this song is really about? And sometimes I think it would help, uh, maybe at rehearsal, to take a song. Don't sing it, because when you're singing, you're thinking about the melody and the harmonies and the timing, and maybe just have someone recite the words and let it soak in real good, and then sing it. Because I think, you know, you can go through a lot of songs. I've, I've sung a lot of songs, especially as a harmony singer, and never given any consideration whatsoever to the, the content of what I was singing. I was thinking more about what note to sing and to try to line my consonants up with the other people and to match my tone with them. And, you know, the last item on my list was what the heck are we even singing about? And sometimes I've been surprised then later to go back and listen to a recording and go, I had no idea that's what that song was about. So if you're doing that, I feel like you're not communicating to the extent that you can. So when, when a song was written, whether you know who wrote it or not, somebody wrote it. If a song was written, the person doing the writing was putting their feelings into words. And then the reverse happens in the listeners and the audience's mind. The the lyrics and the melody and the chords and all that are being translated into feelings once again. So they start out as original feelings, emotions, opinions, whatever in the in the writer's mind, then it becomes a song and then the song is performed And then it's translated back. And if it all works, it's translated back into those original emotions. The songwriter, let's say you sat down and you were writing a bluegrass song. One of these four things is most likely. What you're writing about, you either lived it, you were there, you've been through it. What you're singing about is first-hand experience. If it was a song about being trapped in a coal mine, you were in that coal mine and then you wrote a song about it. So that's the first thing. You personally lived it. Or the second level would be you witnessed it. You weren't trapped, but you were there. You saw the guy pulled out of the hole. Or the third level would be you heard about it. And now we're getting kind of broad. You might have read it in the newspaper, or seen it on the television, or heard somebody talking about it on the street corner. Well, that's another layer of being removed from the original. Or the last one is you just imagined it. There are some great songs um, that have been written where the writer, he didn't live it, and he didn't witness it, and he didn't hear about it. He just imagined the whole thing. And people with really good, vivid imaginations can come up with all kinds of stuff that are 
as powerful as those by people who lived it, witnessed it, or heard about it. <clears throat> so that's what happens when a song is written. And all of those are valid, I think. You know, depending upon how good the song is. Any one of those is the source for the feelings and emotions that live within the lyrics and, and the melody. But then, now performers pick up these songs. And here's, here's what you get. In some cases, not all. The performer is playing and singing the song. And they never lived it. They weren't trapped down in that old coal mine. And the singer, he never witnessed it. He never saw it happen. He wasn't there. And he might or might not have ever even heard of it. And he probably didn't imagine the thing. Because a lot of times people are singing other people's songs. I've seen a lot of people singing songs at, at jam sessions with a book flopped out in front of them, just reading the lyrics off, and they're singing it. And, uh, you know, that's that's okay, but do they... Do they ever take the time to just sit and read the lyrics and contemplate what they're singing about? I would venture to say that most people don't take the trouble to do that. And sticking to my theory, I, I believe that if you will take the time to do that, even if you never lived it or witnessed it, or maybe even never heard of it, it might even not even be a real story. It could be completely imaginary. Stop and imagine that story. Imagine it's you. And then when you get up there and sing the thing, you can call upon that imagination and sing it as if you lived it. And if you do that, there's going to be more powerful emotional content in what you're singing. And it's more likely to be translated back into those emotions in the listeners. Now, I'm going to admit to you, not everybody wants to recreate your emotions. And that's one of the neat things about bluegrass. In some ways, it's almost it's unique in that a lot of times there's a really, really happy, um, you know, upbeat outer shell to the song. But then the content itself, if you stop and think about the words, which some people never do, are the completely the opposite. And then, of course, you've got the basic problem out there that, for a lot of people, if you're going to write a song or understand a song, it helps if you've lived it, witnessed it, or heard about it, or at least imagined it. And, you know, these days, there's a lot of people out there that if you listed some of their major problems, it would be things like, I can't find my phone charger. Or, I was late for work, and the drive through line at Starbucks was so long that I didn't have time to get my coffee this morning, and I'm going to be cranky all day. Or this one, which I personally felt when Hurricane Irma came through, is, the internet is out. Oh, woe is me. What I'm saying is what what qualifies as troubles and trials these days for a lot of people you know they didn't they don't seem that major and it's hard to write a song about the line at Starbucks was too long and I didn't get my coffee you know it's 
I'm going to come back to this in a minute, um, pick up on troubles and so on. But anyway, just bear in mind that some of your audience, uh, even if they just can't imagine what's going on in the song because they've never lived anything even close to it. There are those who have, though. So don't expect every member of your audience to totally get it. But, you know, if you're singing a tear-jerking song all wrapped up in a nice, happy package, the people that don't get it don't need to get it, you know? But there could be that one person out there that's just gone through something that somehow is similar to what you're singing about, and your song might be very meaningful to them. I've had people come up at random, seemingly at random, after a, you know, during a break at a show or something, and come up and say, I just want to tell you, you know, that that song you sang about such such, I just, I, I really appreciate that, and boy, that really hit home with me. You know, those sort of comments, and I have stood there dumbfounded sometimes because I didn't know what they were talking about. I had to stop and think, now, what song was that? And, uh, what do you, you know, it's weird that, you know, the emotional content is in there. And when it resonates with a member of the audience, sometimes you don't have any control over that, but you can improve the odds of making that sort of connection with the audience. I contend if you will at least stop, take the time to read the lyrics and try to imagine what's going on in the song. What's the song about? If you don't know what the song's about, you know, you're, you're at a disadvantage as a performer. Okay. Now, in the, um, at the risk of being accused of plugging my own material, I want to read to you from my own book, which is called the Flint Hill Scrolls. And the Flint Hill Scrolls is pretty much a book of music theory. You might say it's like the the essential music theory for banjo pickers, and it's a pretty long book. I I think it's a hundred and five hundred five or six pages, and it's available on my website. If if you're one of those banjo pickers who are playing a lot of notes, but you don't really know what those notes are and and why we play those notes, the, it's all of that is explained in the book. But here and there throughout the book. I, I take a little side trips, uh, you know, kind of like I do on this podcast. And on page 80 of the Flint Hill Scrolls, I was I was just going through um, different types of chords. And I begin with three note chords, your basic major and minor chords. And I explain all that and how they're formed and all that kind of stuff. And then I start talking about four note chords. And those are more complex. They're the type of chords that appear in blues and jazz and pop music and things like that. And so I was trying to explain, you know, the difference between those more basic three-note chords that are found in more traditional and folk-type music. And so I, you know, this stuff just came to mind, and I started writing. And I'm going to read to you now what I wrote because it applies to this very topic. And here I go, and this is quote from page 80. As complex and mind-boggling as bluegrass is, it hails from a simpler time 
with less complex thought processes than, than is found in some of the more, quote, advanced jazz music. Because I was just coming off of talking about jazz musicians playing things like, you know, major seventh chords and D minor sevenths and diminished chords and all this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of saying, you know, bluegrass sprouted from a simpler time and the chords are simpler. Okay, continuing with my quote, bluegrass makes up for this apparent lack of sophistication by employing nearly impossible feats of physical skill, like speed, and quirky, self-contradictory delivery. And that's what this podcast is about. Continuing, what I mean by that is the paradoxical juxtaposition of dark, fatalistic, depressing themes behind a jaunty, uplifting, happy facade. If you are really paying attention to bluegrass music, the real stuff, you will often discover tales of horror, woe, and despondency, masked by an outward face of spry and cheerful-sounding picking. It's really weird stuff when you get into it. And I'm continuing. I'm now on page 81. Take the song, The Little Girl and the Dreadful Snake. If you hear a bluegrass group perform it, you will hear a pretty straightforward, chin-up rendition without a lot of tear-jerking, heart-tugging music. Very stoic. Yes, our dear little girl was killed by a poisonous snake, yet we can sing about it as if we accept it fully as a natural part of life in this cruel world of inconsistency. Plunky, plunk, plunk. She's dead. We don't wear our sorrow on our sleeve. We keep it in a little rosewood casket. Parentheses. A small ornamental box for keeping jewels, letters, or other valuable objects. Okay, I'm going to end that quote right there. Now, you're going to hear my chair rolling around. I've got all these books and papers laid out here. Let me grab the little girl and the dreadful snake. Hang on. Okay, this is a traditional song here. <laughs> and it's an oldie. I'm going to read to you the, the lyrics to Little Girl and the Dreadful Snake. Uh, incidentally, there was a band, a very short-lived band, um, back in the late 70s, early 80s, probably about 81, called The Dreadful Snakes, had Bela Fleck playing banjo. You might want to check out that one album they put out, The Dreadful Snakes. Listen to this, verse 1. Our darling wandered far away while she was out at play. Lost in the woods, she couldn't hear a sound. She was our darling girl, the sweetest thing in all the world. We searched for her, but couldn't, but she couldn't be found. Then the chorus. I heard the screams of our little girl far away. Hurry, Daddy, there's an awful, dreadful snake. I ran as fast as I could through the dark and dreary woods, but I reached our darling girl too late. Verse 2. Oh, I began to sigh. I knew that soon she'd have to die, for the snake was warning me close by. 
I held her close to my face. She said, Daddy, kill that snake. It's getting dark. Tell Mommy goodbye. And then the chorus again. Verse 3. To all parents, I must say, don't let your children stray away. They need your love to guide them all along. Oh God, I pray we'll see our darling someday. It seems we still can hear her voice around our home. And then the chorus again. Now, okay, to my theory. Let me put this away. I've heard that song. Uh, you know, sung quite a bit. Um, it's uh, It didn't really mean much to me until I stopped and read the words. Um, you, you hear this same kind of thing in, I talked about the song Old Home Place. You know, I've, I've sung it, I don't know how many times. It was a song written by the Dillards. And I've seen J.D. Crow in the New South play it, you know. I've seen Fish play it. And we've played it a whole bunch of times. And like Little Girl and the Dreadful Snake, you know, at first glance, it comes across as pretty upbeat and happy. But when you think about the words later, and when you consider what's actually being said in the old home place, it has a whole different experience, you know? Uh, I'm going to go back now and continue with quoting myself on page 81 of the Flint Hill Scrolls. Quote, Consider the lyrics. What have they done to the old home place? Why did they tear it down? And you realize that this is a painful experience recounted by a person with regrets for ever leaving his home and hearth. And a bad word warning here I wrote the following. It's as lonesome as being the only person in hell. The same can be said for hundreds of bluegrass songs. Quote, there's no light in the window from Munro's I'm on my way back to the old home. That's a perfect example. Listen to it and hear him. And that was before the days when a doctor would carelessly write you a Xanax prescription just to get points toward a golf getaway weekend offered up by the pharmaceutical rep to help you forget about the world. And continuing with what I wrote in the book, you imagine what Bill is saying. He goes away to get a job in the city. When he returns, the old home is abandoned and dark. His parents are dead, and his siblings are scattered and gone. Talk about alone. Bluegrass is not all about playing Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Foggy Mountain Breakdown is a welcome relief and a well-deserved break from the realities of life. As much as I love Flattened Scruggs, I have often thought that their commercial success and outside proddings from industry executives turned their version of bluegrass into bubblegum bluegrass. It's fun, yes, but even their darkest songs come across as lightweight. And yet they, especially Earl Scruggs, faced serious hardships and the deepest painful emotional experiences. Lester and Earl just didn't choose to express those experiences in their music. Bill Monroe, wisely or unwisely, did. Okay, so that's enough about that. That's the end of my quote, and I, I say, listen to 
Mac Wiseman's version of Little Rosewood Casket. And if you think it's silly and corny and outdated, you have a lot to learn. So I'll stop right there. Let's look at Little Rosewood Casket. Uh, hold on, I'm going to rustle some papers and find the lyrics. Here we go, Little Rosewood Casket. I'm getting these lyrics out of Slim Richie's Bluegrass Word Book. This is really tiny print. Okay, here it is, a rosewood casket. And remember here, a, the casket in this case is just a little box you keep stuff in. It's not the box that you plant Grandpa in. There's a little rosewood casket laying on a marble stand. And a package of old letters written by my true love's hand. Go and get them for me, sister. Read them over and over to me. I have often tried to read them, but for tears I could not see. And by the way, this is a this is a girl um, speaking here, talking to her sister and. She obviously has a collection of letters that she has stored away in a little wooden box and preserved, and she's tried to read them, but the tears make it difficult. Let's continue. Come up closer to me, sister. Let me lean upon your breast. For the tide of life is ebbing, and soon I'll be at rest. Read them over to me, sister, while I gently fall asleep. Fall asleep to wake in Jesus, dearest sister, do not weep. She's dying, and her last dying wish is to read these letters from some boyfriend, I'm presuming. Last verse. Tell him, sister, if you see him, that I never cease to love, that my dying prayers to meet him in a better world above. There's a little rosewood casket laying on a marble stand and a package of love letters written by her true love's hand. So how's that for... <laughs> your dying wish is to hear the love letters from the dude that uh, abandoned you and is, is not there and your sister is there. You know, that's true pain. And that's what the song is singing about. But I could get up there this Tuesday night at Pat's place and I could sing that song and there wouldn't be one person in that audience that'd know what the heck I'm talking about, nor care. But maybe, maybe, if I read the words and I convinced all the other players, hey, take five minutes and read this and sit quietly and think about it. Now let's play it. You know? I don't know what might happen. The place might get real quiet, you know. People start might breaking down in tears or something. I don't know. I'm not saying you should do that at every gig. I'm just saying that this is a principle that you should consider. And I, I think it holds true for recorded music as well. Okay, now, let me go to the other side of the coin. Because I sort of implied that, you know, you with your you can't find your phone charger and Starbucks line was too long, you know, that that people don't have real trouble. So they can't relate to that. 
And I don't mean that. People do have real troubles today just as much as their little daughter being killed by a rattlesnake. You know? People that live on my road have lost their job. They've gone through divorce and death and illness and money troubles. and I mean, you name it, there's just as many troubles around today. But when you're singing these songs about you know, that are written in this, it's like this time period from, I don't know, maybe the 1880s up to 1930. That's, that's where a lot of these, uh, you know, like the, uh, the style, everybody's singing about the log cabin, you know, little cabin home on the hill, that kind of thing. And so they become analogies for modern day troubles. So I'm not saying people don't have troubles. And I'm not saying we should rewrite every bluegrass song to to be modern, modernized and modern themes. I, I don't know. You could do that. I'm sure it's being done. Anyway, let me tell you about a book. Uh, there is a book called Masters of the Five String Banjo, and I'm just going to plug it. I did not write it. It was written by Peter Wernick and Tony Trishka. Came out a good while ago, back in the 80s sometime where they interviewed all of the major banjo players extant at that time. These long interviews with some of the great banjo players. One of the ones that I, I thoroughly enjoyed the interview in that book, and that book I believe is still available today if you go to AccuTab. I'll, I'll find the book and put a link to it on the show notes page. But there's an interview in there. I think it's Peter Wernick doing the interview with Butch Robbins and Butch Robbins was one of my favorite banjo players who played with Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys. And he's, he is a real student of bluegrass and especially Bill Monroe and Bill Monroe's version of bluegrass, which is the same thing. I mean, Bill Monroe is bluegrass. Uh, let me now once again, roll my chair across the floor and grab that. I want to read something to you. And this is this is totally cool because it's a review of the book. I you know, I'm not giving away the book. It says in the front, brief passages may be used for the purposes of a review, and I'm reviewing it, and I'm saying this is a great book, by the way. I'm going to read you the first uh this is well into the interview. And uh they they get into this subject of how do you go about feeling and understanding these themes of bluegrass music if you didn't live it? And here's the question. To help an outsider, like a person reading this book, understand Monroe's music, and I'm going to insert, when you say Monroe's music, you're talking about bluegrass. To help a person reading this book understand Monroe's music and get more out of it, is there anything you can say about what to tune into? And Butch Robbins replies, Tune into some values of 1925, country. 1925. Tune into those values. Go talk to your granddaddy or your great granddaddy or whatever you can. Find out what kind of man it took to live back then and then make a music for him that's a picture of that. That's what he did. When he says that's what he did, he means that's what Bill Monroe did. And then Warnick asks this question. What about people who don't have a granddaddy like that? 
And Butch Robin says, go buy a Foxfire book. So I'm going to stop there and then I'm going to come back and continue that quote in just a minute. But he says, go buy a Foxfire book. And I did. Of course, I, I had, I've told the story before about building my first banjo using the plans from the Foxfire book that I got from the library where my mother worked at the library. So when these were just coming out, when the, when the first published volumes of, in book form came out, I was eating them up. And uh, so I'm very familiar with Foxfire. But a few years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I ran across a whole stack of original Foxfire magazines that uh, at Goodwill and bought them for a quarter apiece, bought, a, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them. And so Butch says, hey, you want to understand this stuff? You know, get yourself a Foxfire book and read some of it. So since you might not have a Foxfire um, magazine laying around, and I do, I'll just read you a little bit out of one of them. This is from Foxfire, March 1968, Volume 2, Number 1. So this is the second year. I think they were, I don't know, well, they were quarterly? Yeah, they're quarterly. And it's funny, subscriptions to Foxfire at that time were $3 a year. <laughs> so I'm just going to read you a little snatch of this just to kind of give you the flavor of what Butch is saying to do. And this is a little article. It says here, this is the way I was raised up by Mrs. Marvin Watts. The following article was given to us by its author, Mrs. Watts, during a recent visit to her home. It was painstakingly written out in pencil on notebook paper that had been folded and refolded many times. It is presented here exactly as it was given to us, and we print it because we think you will find it as fascinating and revealing as we did, the editors. And here we go. This is Mrs. Marvin Watts, and, and there's tons of this stuff. If you want to kind of understand, like, Bill Monroe's boyhood, you'll, uh, you know, this is a good good place to check this out. And it doesn't matter if you're folks were pioneers in Illinois, like mine were. My great-great-great-great-grandfather was the first settler in um, Iroquois County, Illinois. There you go. But the way they lived was very similar to this. Let's get on with this. This is Mrs. Marvin Watts. My daddy raised the stuff we lived on. He growed the corn to make our bread. He growed the cane to make our syrup, also growed the beans and peas to make the soup beans out of, and dried leather breeches, beans, and dried fruit enough to last all winter. And right there, I hear a fiddle tune. You've heard the tune, leather breeches. Do you know what they are? Can you make them? And do you eat them? Look them up. He killed enough meat to last all winter. He killed a beef and a sheep and two or three hogs for the winter. He didn't have much money for anything. That's a common feeling these days, isn't it? We just had our biscuits for Sunday morning, and when Mother ran out of coffee, she parched chestnuts and ground them on her coffee mill to make coffee out of. And when it rained and the mills couldn't grind our bread, we ate potatoes for bread. My dad used to make our shoes. I can remember wearing them. My mother my mother used to weave wool cloth to make blankets and cloths out of, clothes out of. 
I have worn wool dresses, and my dad has worn homemade breeches out of woven wool. My mother also knit our stockings and socks, too. I have hope. I have helped my dad shear sheep a lot of times to get that wool. My mother would wash it and spin it to make into thread and then weave it on her loom to make her blankets and cloth out of. We used to have corn shuckets to get all our corn shucked. We had our crib full. That lasted till the next fall. Everybody in the neighborhood come and my mother cooked a big dinner for the crowd. Seems as everybody was happy. I remember when my mother had to cook on the fireplace, she cooked her dried fruits and everything on the fireplace. It sure was good back in them days. I used to help my brothers saw wood to make fires out of to keep warm. We lived in a log house. It was pretty hard to keep warm by an open fire place. But we never was sick back then. We played out we played out in the biggest snow ever come. We had a we had a spring to carry our water from and my dad had to take his shovel and ditch out a way through the snow for us to get to the spring. The snow was waist deep. We used to make our playhouses out in the woods, make our rag dolls to play with. My brothers sawed pine wagon wheels and made their wagons to play with. I have went to the mountains and hope helped my dad and brothers snake out tan bark to get a little money to buy things with. One Christmas, Santa Claus gave us three or four sticks of candy and an orange. He put it in our stockings, and we was as pleased as if he had given us a box full of candy. We lived on a hill out of sight of the road, and we was told there was a car coming through that day. It was a T-model Ford. Tom Mitchell was driving it, and we sat on the hill all day to get to see it. We had never seen a car. Anyway, that was a little bit of the flavor of the old days. And now to finish up, put that away, I'm going to go back and continue what Butch Robbins is saying because he doesn't and I don't want you to get the impression that you had to grow up in a log cabin to get be a part of bluegrass. You totally don't. So let me continue. He said, what about people that don't have a granddaddy like that? He says, go buy a Foxfire book. Then he continues. It's just a reflection of the place, and the place being, in this particular case, the rural South. He, Bill Monroe, grew out of that real, real quick. Monroe's mind thinks on an international level. He's not a little hometown Rosine, Kentucky boy. The music, the whole form and everything, it's just a reflection. It's like painting a picture. It's a way that some idealistic southern man, a poor old country boy, would have been in the 20s and 30s, you know, growing up and everything and, and accepting the changes. And this is Butch still talking. You know, Monroe came up in an era of great changes in mass communication, mass transportation, and everything, and just everything. He was able to take advantage of some of that there. People before him couldn't travel as extensively as he could. People before him and after him didn't have a chance to get in on radio and phonograph recording all the way from its infancy through becoming major industries in our country. He fell into that. His eyes were crossed when he was young. He had a speech impediment and everything else. All these things wrong with him. 
you go to Kentucky and find me one kid who lives there under these same circumstances out of a million candidates and see who will ever go to do what he's done the way he's done it. He's just magic. Because, brother, believe me, it ain't contrived. If he were using his brain to figure out some of what he's got, he'd still be up in Kentucky. With that man, he's talking about Bill Monroe, it just happens to him. you got to read Butch Robbins. Uh, Butch has a book, too, called What I Know About What I Know. I'm not sure it's still available, but it might be. Look it up. I, I consider Butch Robbins to be the great philosopher in the bluegrass world. All right, so I've shuffled enough papers and wasted enough of your time today and plugged my book, The Flint Hill Scrolls, for you banjo pickers who are picking and don't really know why you're playing those particular notes. Get that book, and you'll find a lot of fun stuff in it and um, enlightening things to read, and it's pretty cheap, too. So check that out, and, of course, visit my website, scope out all the the goodies that I peddle over there, and uh, check out the book. Uh, what I Know About What I Know, and also Masters of the Five-String Banjo. And it's really interesting that you open Masters of the Five-String Banjo, and the first chapter is about Bill Monroe, the mandolin player, not Earl II. Anyway, big section in there about Monroe. you got to know about Monroe and understand him to get what, what we're up to here. So y'all have fun. I am going to close out this show with another tune from Danny Ellison and West by East because on just a couple listens, I think this song might be a good example of a song written in the modern era, probably written by Danny. Uh, They released it in 2016. He probably, what I'm saying is this song was not written back in 1915. And it's a tearjerker. Y'all get your hankies ready. It's a a great song, but just be prepared. It's called Teardrops on That Gun. Though Cyrus Jones has lived alone out in the woods since he was just a boy. And he bears a heavy load. So long ago he left his home and never told a soul But now his story must be told
Jesus' mama tucked him in the bed and said goodnight. And she waited up till three. Osiris tried to stay awake, but sleep took him away into a dream. But to a nightmare he soon Walked in and saw a scene that a boy should never see His mama laid out on the floor and his daddy on his knees He ran to her and gently wiped the blood off of her face Little Cyrus knew what he'd have to do with daddy on that It's the only piece of evidence Osiris left undone His tiny fingerprints and teardrops on that gun Little Osiris 